Welcome to the Gaggle Podcast, where we bring you inside the newsroom to talk Arizona politics beyond what's in print. I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez, the Governor's Office and State Politics Reporter at the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Joining me this week at our Arizona Capitol Bureau are Maria Paletta, Diversity and Inequality Reporter. Ron Hansen, I cover the Congressional Delegation. Dustin Gardner, I cover the State Legislature. This week on The Gaggle, Republicans in CD8 battle for the title of the Trumpiest Trumper of them all. Ducey tells the Koch Network he didn't run for governor to pitch small ball ideas. Why did Ducey really call a special session on opioids? But first, Maria, a Navajo lawmaker is making headway with a plan to establish an annual Native American Day. What's motivating this? So uh, Senator Jamesita Peshlakai, who is a Democrat, this is not her first attempt to establish uh, an annual Native American Day in Arizona. She's tried this uh, several years uh, now on different days. This year would uh, use July 15th, which is the anniversary of an Arizona court decision that gave Native Americans the right to vote. And does she think that you know, the contributions of Native Americans have gone unrecognized or underappreciated? Well, she feels that given uh, Arizona's huge Native American population, we have one of the largest in the U.S., that it's long overdue, something like this, which is probably why she's been trying to get this passed for several years. Um, I heard that other lawmakers had tried this uh, as far back as 20 years ago with no success. So given what Native Americans have faced here and nationwide, she feels, as I said, that it's long overdue. Has she met any kind of resistance? So in terms of the Native American community's reaction, it's been mixed. Of course, nobody is anti-Native American Day. They all support establishing that. However, she's gotten mixed reactions in terms of the day she chose. Um, Of course, it has historical significance for the reason I mentioned, but most Native Americans that I interviewed, if not all, had no idea about that anniversary and felt that nobody else does. It's not common knowledge, so it will seem sort of random. A lot of them were hoping that um, Native American contributions would be honored on Columbus Day, as has been the case in Phoenix and Flagstaff and other cities and states in the U.S. Others were hoping for the day after Thanksgiving or at least in November, which is National Native American Heritage Month, um, kind of when they said, you know, people are already thinking about Native American contributions, injustices, um, all those issues. And is this a day to just solely be dedicated to those contributions and to highlight you know, maybe the sacrifices that they've made, or is there is there something more to this? Absolutely. It's it's both of those things. And I asked uh, Senator Peshlakai and some other lawmakers how they envision this being commemorated. Um, obviously, it's sort of early days right now with this legislation, but they would expect, they said, um, a mix of sort of education in terms of uh, Native American contributions and sacrifices, as you said, um, celebrations, um, sort of celebrating, you know, tribal customs, culture, that sort of thing. Um, dialogue between Native Americans and others who are, you know, non-Natives, so a little bit of everything. And this comes against the backdrop of another legislative attempt. Um, Another Native American Democratic state lawmaker wants to um, ban certain logos from being displayed on publicly funded projects or stadiums. What's that about? Yes, so um, this is, is sort of an early version of this legislation that we're working off of here. We're going to hear more about it very soon. But based on what we've seen, um, this bill would, any athletic facility, stadium in the state, um, would have to prohibit display of 
names, logos, so, so forth that are considered disparaging to Native Americans. Um, and it would sort of put the onus on Native American tribes who have land in Arizona to notify that facility in writing. They haven't explained or elaborated on what um, qualifies as disparaging, uh, whether there would be any review um, of those written complaints, but that's sort of the general aim of the bill. What strikes me about this bill um is I think we all can sort of figure out what the intent is, but in terms of what it would actually say and mean is it could lead to some surprising outcomes. So, for example, it appears to hand over the the decision-making for what is objectionable to Arizona-based native tribes. And so you have situations, or you can think of them, where, for example, the Washington Redskins will play in uh, Glendale this fall, and that's a, a name that is, you know, pretty controversial in, in Native American circles and elsewhere. That's an easy one. But what about when Florida State brings its athletic teams here for competition, for example? They have the approval of the Seminole tribe. Um, but if the Apaches here decided that they found that offensive, it would essentially take away Florida State's identity on the basis of uh, how an Arizona tribe that is not related uh, in in some ways to the the Seminoles. So it just seems like there's some language that may need to be clarified in this if it if it is to proceed and and just uh, there were other vagaries about it. So what if they were to decide, for example, that they found the term Cardinals offensive for some reason? Uh, would that just hijack the name of the Cardinals football team? Um, from them. Uh, You know, it just feels like it's a bit vague on that front. Dustin, do you have a sense of how this might play out just numbers-wise at the, you know, will it really even advance? He's from Democratic Party. They clearly are not the majority down here. I mean, Maria was just talking about how much of a struggle has been for Peshlakai to get a Native American Day bill to advance. I mean, given that history, I don't see this moving anywhere very quickly. Um, But I think, you know, beyond that, this is probably just about sending a message. together and moderated uh, two Arizona Republic debates for candidates running in CD8. This is the seat that was vacated by uh, Representative Trent Franks uh, amid allegations of improper behavior there uh, in D.C. What struck you as the most notable maybe moments uh, on the GOP side? Hmm. On the Republican side, I guess it was how they were all sort of clamoring for this same space as the most loyal to the president, the most uh, uh, dedicated to pushing ahead with the the current uh, administration's agenda. This is something that isn't altogether surprising, but it is something to, to see it right in front of you. They couldn't find much space, for example, on border security, as far as I could tell, uh, they all sort of rejected the uh, science of climate change. They all uh, were sort of uh, saying that they're supportive of whatever uh, the, the uh, agenda may be with budget and taxes and such. And they kind of clamored for uh, what, to my ears, sounded like relatively small changes in the federal budgeting as well, things like pension reforms and such uh, that 
truth be told, really wouldn't impact the federal deficits uh, in any meaningful sense. But these were the kinds of ideas that were being pushed out. They didn't want to talk about uh, any substantial cuts to other federal programs. So uh, in the absence of that, they all kind of glommed onto uh, relatively uh, small ideas. There was a moment uh, during the debate where Steve Montenegro, a, a former uh, state representative uh, and senator, he's an immigrant from El Salvador, and I thought he was going to lunge across the podium and strangle you after you <laughs> asked um, if, if his values and work ethic would be any different if his family uh, had brought him to the United States illegally at the age of five. He is an immigrant from El Salvador, and his family did come legally. Uh, what was your intent in asking that question, and uh, was it fair? Uh, well, Senator Montenegro certainly didn't think it was fair, um, and I'm still kind of waiting for an answer on that, because I, I think that the question, in my mind anyway, is fair. What I was trying to get at is to hear him speak on immigration and sketch out the bounds of maybe how we should think of people who come from countries that the president has described in vulgar terms, uh, which includes himself. We also want to know how this applies to folks who are under um, uh, special protected status or asylum, uh, who are looking for uh, legal protection and guidance in terms of long-term immigration policies in this country, and, and how is it that we should think of people like the Dreamers, who are also facing a very contemporary issue of their own status and, and long-term future here. Um, would Steve Montenegro be any different if his parents had brought him here illegally? I, I mean, to me, it feels like that's an obvious one. He would be the same person today that he would under different circumstances, but that's obviously not an answer he wants to give. And I was hoping to hear more of a, um, uh, a thoughtful uh, you know, discussion of his immigration views and how his own personal life has shaped who he is now as a uh, person who is in the public policy realm. There was also a, another kind of awkward or, oh, geez, kind of moment when you asked Bob Stump if he was trying to um, take advantage of uh, that name or if he was really trying to fool voters uh, into thinking that he was the late Bob Stump. What did he have to say to that? So Bob Stump, is his legal name is Christopher Robert Stump. And for most of his life, he was known as Chris or Christopher. He wrote uh, professionally for several publications before he turned to politics, and his byline was Christopher Stump, for example, when he wrote for the Weekly Standard. Um, this is something that changed in 2002 when he decided to run for office here in Arizona. He went by the name Bob Stump. And his explanation was his father was battling Alzheimer's at that time. This is a name that uh, means something to the family, and they trace it back to the 19th century, and that um, this was a name that his father could kind of hold on to. And, and um, his father is also named Bob Stump. So there, there's this longstanding family connection to that name Bob Stump is what they said. Of course, it, it doesn't explain why on a ballot he needed to change it to Bob when, you know, what he's talking to uh, his family, they can call him Bob or Chris or whatever they want to call him. 
But uh, that was his answer, and, and it's something that has sort of sparked a bit of a, a, a ruckus in the days since as to who really can go by the name Bob Stump. And uh, the congressman's, the late congressman's widow weighed in earlier this week. What did she have to say? Um, basically, uh, there's only one Bob Stump, and that's her late husband. That was the, the short answer for it. Um, she wants to make clear that there is no family relation. And in fairness to the corporation commissioner who is now running for Congress, he did make clear that there is no relation. He did, he's not tried to say that explicitly, uh, that somehow he's related to him. It's just what isn't said, and, and the, the language, for example, on his campaign website also being sort of vague and, and suggesting a family relation may exist there. This is bothersome, and clearly Nancy Stump was uh, troubled by it and, and feels that Bob Stump, the corporation commissioner, is sort of hanging on to the coattails of Bob Stump, the congressman. It was interesting to watch this play out over social media because Montenegro then came to the defense of Chris slash Bob Stump. That's right, as did uh, Bob Stump, the corporation commissioner's mother. (laughs) So it's something that uh, this has uh, definitely caused people to take sides. It's interesting that the candidates uh, who are uh, running against Mr. Stump, if I can (laughs) just put it that way, uh, they are not piling on to make any bigger issue of it. But on Twitter, there was sort of a parody account that uh, has been poking him basically since this race began. So there is some, uh, I think, underbelly of, of discontent and dismay that, uh, that Mr. Stump has been trying to uh, ride uh, to the finish line with this uh, very notable name. Was there a clear winner in your mind? Of the debates? Um not really. I, I don't think anybody did anything to truly disqualify themselves. And I think everybody sort of had the same strategy to get to the, the Trump spot first. But I don't know that anybody really did. I think that there's there are things that appeal to certain folks about each one of these candidates. The question is, who's got the most of them? So I think that Debbie Lesko, for example, entered as perhaps the favorite, and she is the one who's uh, a fairly accomplished lawmaker. She left as still a relatively accomplished lawmaker. Uh, Phil Lovis, uh, just as another example, is the one who tried to claim that his loyalty to Donald Trump began far before everyone else's and that uh, based on that, he is the real deal. And I think he left the debate still able to make that kind of claim. So I don't know that anybody really knocked anyone else off the block. Well, on the Democratic side, several thousand people, many thousand people tuned in for uh, their performance. What they didn't get to see was the performance or the uh, encounter that occurred before the cameras went live. Take us there. Yeah, so maybe we'll have to do some outtakes here, but uh, there was uh, a bit of an exchange during the um, final minutes before the debate actually began. It was. Uh, it, it began with some fairly benign chatter between the candidates, uh, just trying to make small talk as we're all waiting for the countdown to uh, to lead into the show. And you know, there were some comments, uh, questions about um, where children go to school, and it just elicited a fairly hostile response from Brianna Westbrook. And I think it caught uh, Harold Tepperneni off balance. And what struck me was just sort of how prolonged this moment of hostility lasted. And it was very clear 
that these two women did not really want to make nice um, beyond what they needed to do for the debate itself, that uh, this is a fairly contentious democratic uh, race. And it's sort of remarkable, I think, just that there even is a race. Remember, this is a district that in 2016, the Democrats didn't even field a candidate on the ballot in, in the general election. So now to go from where nobody's on there to having two people fairly uh, fiercely fighting, I, I think, is uh, a sign of how the Democrats are trying to get in the game and, and they're, they're doing their best to get the upper hand. What stood out to you on the Democratic side? Were there, were there any positions or uh, comments that, that you walked away being you know, surprised about? One thing that kind of surprised me was that Brianna Westbrook was trying to also lay claim to the Trump candidate uh, name. She said that she sees herself as uh, being like Donald Trump. This was a question I asked because neither of these two Democratic candidates are especially well-known I was trying to get them to give us a sense as to people, political contemporaries who might be useful in, in understanding who they are and, and, and such. And Brianna Westbrook identified President Trump, which was a little surprising in a democratic debate. But I think that the point she was trying to make is that she's a little unconventional. She's a little bit uh, of uh, a fiery person. And I, I think, you know, actually at the end of the debate, that kind of worked. So she, she did have that. And um Others have sort of cast this as maybe a Bernie versus Hillary sort of debate uh, in terms of these these two candidates. I'm not sure I completely buy that, but um, it was also sort of uh, the the undercurrent to the whole debate is uh, what is the direction for the Democrats? How confrontational should they be? And was there a clear winner in your mind? You know, I thought uh, Dr. Tipper Nanny uh, did a good job in terms of making a very polished presentation. I think that Ms. Westbrook made a very emotional plea to people that she promised she would fight for the people and that she comes from very humble beginnings. And so I think depending on what you're trying to take from this, um, somebody looked like a really uh, strong candidate and somebody else looked like they were uh, making a plea for social change. Justin, Ducey called a special session to try to tackle uh, policies that hopefully would curb the opioid epidemic here in Arizona. Uh, there were some people who thought maybe we didn't necessarily need a special session and that maybe it could have been handled during the regular special session. Take us behind the scenes politically. I mean, what what are the different factors at play here beyond the policy? Yeah, so on the surface, this is was very much the kind of bipartisan photo op that the governor's office and a lot of lawmakers are probably looking for. Um, the the legislation got passed in both chambers with the unanimous vote. Um, but outside of the legislature, there was a lot of pushback from doctors and patients, and some lawmakers did voice that even though they voted for um, the bill in the end. Um, and the concern was that this was rushed through without getting a lot of comments from doctors and patients who would be affected by some of the prescription and dosage limits. Um, but it is an election year, so I think a lot of critics see this as Ducey and the legislature maybe grandstanding and trying to get what looks like that really strong bipartisan moment 
Yeah, I mean, and, and speaking about the bipartisan moment, Ron, I think you'll remember back in 2015 when uh, he claimed bipartisanship on a budget because he had the vote of one then-Democratic lawmaker who later switched to Republican. He was widely panned for that characterization of the budget. But this really was bipartisanship at play, right? Yeah, I mean, unanimous, all Democrats, all Republicans in the legislature. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's worth mentioning that this is something that didn't need to be done in a special session, technically speaking. that They could have passed this bill through the, the, reg, the regular legislative process, but they chose a special session to speed it up. Ducey called the session on a Monday. Lawmakers had approved the final bill by Thursday night. Um, so it just gave them that kind of um, optic of having pushed something through in response to emergency. But even Senate uh, Majority Leader Kimberly, Kimberly Yee pointed out that um, most of the provisions of the bill don't take effect until 2019. And the Cato Institute, which is a conservative group, they they had some choice criticism for, for Ducey and, and uh, the lack of transparency and the and the quick pace of uh, of weighing this legislation. What were what were your takeaways from that piece? Yeah, Cato was very sharp in their criticism. They said that this was grandstanding, it was sloppy, haphazard lawmaking, and in their in their words, there were some major consequences to that. They're they're concerned that some of these prescription dosage limits will affect patients with chronic pain. Uh, patients who, you know, m might need more than a five-day fill on an initial prescription. And there was also concerns about the Good Samaritan provision of the law. This is the provision that allows um, someone who, who reports a drug overdose to not face prosecution from law enforcement um, for drug use. But there's a provision in that portion of the law that allows them to be prosecuted for other offenses. And so that's, that's something that Cato said could be a loophole that would backfire um, and discourage people from taking advantage of that and reporting potential overdoses. So in a couple areas, we're definitely seeing the complaint that there were loopholes or um, unintended consequences the legislature did not think through. So Yvonne, I'm gonna turn tables on you and ask you some questions here if I can. Um, what strikes me about this special session is that compared to some of the ones that we've seen in the past in, in recent years where the state was facing truly, you know, serious financial pressure uh, and had to make uh, some changes in the budgeting or where they needed to take up things like Proposition 123 and sort of create space to uh, have this kind of uh, significant um, departure on education and what to do with it. I mean, how does this one look by comparison? Is it is it all optics or is there some real policy meat here? Well, I think the 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 criticism I think of Ducey would be that the policy side looked as though it was largely done and completed, and it could have been um, tackled maybe even before the regular session began if it truly needed to be a special session and truly if if lawmakers' minds needed to be focused solely on this issue. And, you know, the issue of optics with this governor is going to be a perennial one. I mean, you have very important Republican lawmakers down there uh, at the legislature who, you know, on background will say, you know, this is they, they wouldn't quite call it a stunt, but they were uh, very critical 
of the of the need to have a special session because extra work comes with that right during during the regular session i mean there's a lot of clerk work that has to be done uh they you know were being summoned to press conference and you know press conferences and hadn't even agreed on the final language of what the legislation was going to look like when they had their press conferences press conference announcing the special session so there was a little bit of you know grumbling here and there um i think policy wise though they're going to take a wait and see attitude and, and see how things um, pan out. I do think that it is notable that they aren't going that the policies aren't going to take effect until 2019 after the election. Right. So one other question uh, for you, kind of shifting gears, uh, but keeping Doug Ducey in the uh, the subject matter. Uh, the governor made his annual uh, trek to the uh, the Coke Network uh, gathering in Palm Springs. Uh, we've seen reporting on what came out of that. So what came out of that as it relates to Governor Ducey and, and the Cokes? So this is uh, an annual summit of the mega donors. These are the people who give 100000 or more uh, to the Coke network each uh, each year. And, you know, they, they get together. They talk about what their plans are for the midterm elections. They talk about policies. They talk about achievements. And Ducey, who is widely seen as a rising star in this kind of libertarian slash conservative um, arena, got on stage and, you know, he touted the expansion of the Empowerment Scholarship Account Program. This is the very controversial program that allows um, all public students to apply for uh, public funds to, you know, take then to their private schooling or to their religious education or for educational therapies or services. Um, it, the program is currently limited to certain categories of kids, such as special needs and um, those in uh, poor performing uh, districts. Ducey has been pretty um, careful in how he has talked about what the plans might be moving forward. Um, a, a group of parents and public education advocates have successfully uh, referred this matter, this new law, to the ballot uh, in November. They want to ask voters, you know, hey, do you want to keep this expanded version of the law or do you want to keep it the status quo? You want to keep it limited to certain categories. For the first time, Ducey essentially said, like, look, you know, this is a really big deal in my state. And, quote, I didn't run for governor to play small ball. I think this is an important idea. And, uh, you know, there was uh, suggestions there that the network would be spending big money in 2018 to try to protect this law. That's according to reporting by The Washington Post, which was there. For our final segment, we're going to try something new. Who hasn't called you back, Maria? I am waiting on a call from federal census officials. This is also about um, some issues involving the Native American community. There's concern that since the budget, uh, the census budget has been slashed for 2020, that there may be a significant undercount of the Native population. Ron. So back to the debates. I want to uh, sort of close the loop with Senator Montenegro, especially on on the immigration issue, uh, and and have him sketch out a little bit more detailed uh, his own background and experience, and uh, get a sense as to how that shapes his current views. So, Senator, if you're listening, give me a call. 
Dustin. I'm trying to get a call back from State Senator Nancy Bartow. Uh, Bartow, a Republican, is sponsoring a pretty controversial abortion bill. This would require women undergoing that procedure to answer more detailed questions about their reasons for getting an abortion. Definitely going to stir some controversy back here, so I would like a call back. And I'm waiting for a call back from uh, Coke affiliated groups that might actually uh, spend the big money in 2018 to protect that school voucher law. That's it for today. Thank you for listening to the Gaggle podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Yvonne Winget. I'm at M Paletta, P O L L E T T A. I'm at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H A N S E N. I'm at Dustin Gardner, and that's G A R D I N E R. Thanks to the politics team and all. Also, our producers, Haley Sanchez and Carly Henry. Uh, Mr. Michael Squires might be back next week. Please subscribe to the show and review it on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. See you next week.